going to close out the month of June here and get you into the month of July this very week here on Talk with a Southern Accent. I'm John Rawl. Hello. Welcome in to the show all about the southeast of the United States. We are the Y'all Show. Hope you all had a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Many of you hot, but not as hot as for the folks out on the left coast. My goodness, record-breaking temperatures in Oregon and Washington State, all up into British Columbia and more. Just a rough, rough couple of days. If you have friends or family members in that part of the world, they're just not used to seeing those kind of temps. In fact, at 110 degrees, I'm not sure we want to see those temperatures here in this part of the world. But things will be heating up right here on the Y'all Show this week. We are so glad that you're going to be a part of the program. If you want to get involved, it is easy to do that. All you got to do is ring us here at 803-803-816-1170. 803-816-1170. That's a number you can text or call at your convenience. And we also have our website. It is y'all.com. Y'all is the South's homepage. And we've got plenty of wonderful information and you're welcome to go to it anytime you're available. We're adding more and more stuff. Got some great video stuff we put up over the weekend that you don't want to miss out on. So go to the South's homepage, yall.com. It is y'all.com. And y'all is proud to put forward this y'all show each and every weekday. Appreciate you tuning in on awesome radio stations across the Southeast. And we're also available in podcast form. And if you're listening to us on one of those great stations and you have to go to the powder room for some reason and or you got pulled into a meeting and you missed out on some of the y'all show, well, you're in luck because you can listen to this show in its entirety at your convenience. All you have to do is go to y'all.com and search there in the top of the the web address there in the top portion of the homepage for y'all show. And you'll see that you click on there and you come down on the page, you'll see video interviews that we've done. But you'll also see the every every podcast is linked there, audio podcast. You can listen to it that way. You can go into the iHeartRadio app. We're available there. The TuneIn app, free downloads there. Stitcher app, Apple Podcasts, that pretty purple podcast app. If you've got an iPhone or an iPad, it's free of charge. And it, you can actually set it up where it will automatically download every time we put a show up. So, Essentially, in the PM hours, every single day, you'll have available to you a copy of this show for the day that you are enjoying, and that will help your day go by so much faster and much more enjoyable if you get it through podcast options. Of course, try to listen in on our great stations because we sure appreciate all of our affiliates and all those who listen in each and every day. And if you're listening in each and every day and you listen in today, on this 28th of June, you've got headlines across the southeast, an update from South Florida as the body count continues to increase in this sad, sad story of the condo collapse there in the Miami-Dade portion of Florida. So we'll have info on that. A sad story coming from Pea Ridge, Arkansas, as an officer was killed in the line of duty over the weekend. We'll give you the latest from the natural state on that front. Then we have a couple of statue-related stories, one kind of a novelty thing on the Alabama Gulf Coast, and then another one was just unveiled, a brand-new statue at State Farm Arena in Atlanta. I'll tell you what sporting legend got a statue unveiled in the ATL over the weekend. 
It won't be one for Trey Young anytime soon as he went down with an injury in the NBA playoffs and he is going to not be available for the Hawks. It looks like coming forward. I, I, I won't say that. He's had a, he wasn't available for a large portion of the game the Atlanta Hawks and Milwaukee Bucks played. And as a result, the Bucks take a 2-1 series lead in that NBA Eastern Conference Championship Series in Atlanta. And so, therefore, knowing how NBA players can bounce right back, he might be available when the Atlanta Hawks try to even that series up. But we'll give you the latest in the NBA playoffs. We'll also share with you what's going on in golf. A big, big weekend in golf. In fact, there was a major played in Atlanta, technically Johns Creek in the Atlanta area, and we'll let you know which Floridian walked away with the big prize, and that Floridian will now join her sister on the U.S. Olympic team. And those two sisters, a Florida pair, are golf's dynamic duo right now, as they are both currently in the LPGA's top five money list, and they're often going big time in women's golf men's golf speaking of georgia a georgia connection as georgia raised tennessee educated he went to baylor school in chattanooga and now calls seattle georgia i think is his technical residence now harris english picks up a dramatic win on the pga tour sunday at the travelers and that was played just south of hartford connecticut this thing was must-see TV. If you missed out on it, he won that on the eighth playoff hole. That's right, he played 18 holes, and then he had to go another eight holes just to finally get a birdie where his UT alumnus opponent got a par. And Harris English gets his second win this year, his fourth win overall on the PGA Tour, picks up about a million and a half dollars with the win on Sunday. We'll let you know about that. Also... We're going to give you the latest on the College World Series. The National Championship Finals begin this evening, and it will pit the Vanderbilt Commodores of the SEC and the Mississippi State Bulldogs of the SEC. It's SEC versus SEC for the National Championship of College Baseball. But, don't, 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 we've got breaking news here to start your Monday on the Y'all Show. We're going to do something for the second time in the history of this here publishing company and production company and broadcast empire, we're going to declare in our sports report here in this first hour, y'all.com's second ever national champion. We've done it before, and we're going to do it again. You've got to stick around later this hour. We are going to declare not the national champion of college baseball, but we're going to declare a national champion, and we're going to go ahead and do it today. So stay tuned for the big news, and it is big news, because this team in y'all.com and the y'all show's opinion deserves to be a national champion of college baseball. Why? I've got the evidence of why they deserve to be national champs, and we'll share that with you later this hour also before hour one is in the books today we're going to have a sort of synopsis of southern history news and notes of this week and some of it is a lot of fun and some of it is just uh maybe you might put down in the boring category but we're going to start off with a fun stuff did you realize it was this week back in the 1970s that the movie Convoy hit movie theaters. And we're going to have that great song played as we get into our Southern history 
here in this first hour of the Y'all Show. So, yeah, get ready for the 1978 film Conway, Chris Christopherson, Ally McGraw starring in that one. And it was a big, cultural, iconic movie back in the 1978. And it was released on this day in 1978. And it made over $45 million at the box office in this rather low-budget film based on the country music song Convoy by C.W. McCall. So that's a part of great history on this day. Also, speaking of music history, it was on this day back in 2003 that Reuben Stoddard beat Clay Aiken to win season two of American Idol. And oddly enough, after that happened, the the Birmingham guy, Reuben Stoddard, got bested by Clay Aiken, the North Carolinian, and Clay Aiken went on to have a number one and he became the first new artist to go straight to number one on the Hot 100 chart after he is famed there on American Idol. But it was this week, 18 years ago, Ruben versus Clay, season two of American Idol came to a close. You had two Southerners up and facing off against each other. And I'm going to let you know a little bit more about Ruben Stoddard. Ruben Stoddard, the now 42-year-old singer, who was born in a country that doesn't even exist anymore. I'll tell you what country that was and what Reuben Stoddard's been up to lately. Also this day and this week marks the anniversary of the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I'll let you know a little bit more about that. Plus, this week also marks the 26th Amendment's birth, the 26th Amendment to the United States Constitution. I'll explain what that is when we get to our Southern history. Plus, this week marks the birth of Confederate General John Bell Hood, the Kentuckian turned Texan. I'll let you know about his role in the Civil War and why there's always been controversy about Confederate General John Bell Hood's role in the war between the states, a.k.a. War of Northern Aggression. And so we'll have that. And we're not done with the history. I'll tell you a great, great story about history that is... Something only found in the South, frankly. And we're going to save that till the third hour. Also in today's Y'all Show, hour number two, Jerry Short will be dropping by. And he's going to kind of echo what we are going to announce here as far as a national champion of college baseball. We'll get his take on that. Plus, he's got a lot more stuff to say. In fact, he told me when I spoke to him over the weekend that he's been researching this man skull found in China. And so Jerry Short is going to kick into his scientific hat and tell us what he thinks of the newly discovered thing that they found in China called Dragon Man. Have y'all heard about this? I've seen the headlines. I haven't taken the time to read about it. Jerry Short, our Takapola storyteller, is actually going to weigh in on this thing, if you will, in hour number two. We also have Kobe Bennett dropping by with a new report this week, a southern accent on food. Hour three today, an update with more sports information. And then, as I said, we're going to have a little bit more history added today on the Y'all Show. I'm going to tell you about the unbelievable, sad, yet only in the South story of Richard Mentor Johnson. Now, if you're not familiar with Richard Mentor Johnson, he was the ninth vice president of the United States, served with Martin Van Buren. He was from the Louisville, Kentucky area, and he has quite a story, quite a romantic story, definitely controversial at the time. It's controversial today, 
and the way that his relationships were handled and the sad legacy that he leaves behind. He died well before the Civil War, but we'll tell you about Richard Minter Johnson and how his name popped up over the weekend as this guy who lived in the mid-19th century was back in the news here in the 21st century. And we'll let you know about this Kentuckian and his romances and only in the South. That's all I can tell you. You'll just have to stick around for that story of Richard Minter Johnson. All that plus a preview of what is on the Y'all Show this week. That is what we have in store here on Talk with a Southern Accent. And we don't want to hold you up anymore. Let's get into the fun here on this Monday, getting your week started edition of the Y'all Show. Now, we'll go to Florida to start off our headlines. Tunneling is continuing there at the Champlain Towers there in the Miami-Dade area of Florida as Miami-Dade Fire Rescue are working hard trying to find any kind of survivors as rescuers have been able to find some voids inside the wreckage there at that tower, the condo tower that collapsed on Thursday. The voids in the wreckage seem to be mostly in the basement and parking garage areas, according to a deputy incident commander with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, Andy Alvarez. Families of the missing rode buses to a site nearby from which they could watch teams at work on Sunday. Firefighters, sniffer dogs, and experts are employing radar and sonar devices. Right now, more than 150 people are still missing in Surfside, Florida. The death toll rose. It's now currently sitting at nine at this condo collapse from last week. And it's just a very awful, tragic scene. The governor of Florida was on hand over the weekend. The Miami-Dade mayor also available to meet with the media and more as they are trying to figure out how in the world this thing could have happened. And, and now, unfortunately, we're seeing more and more cases of perhaps some chicanery going on in the years prior to this collapse between local officials and inspectors and the owners of the building. But right now, the death toll sitting at nine and definitely looks like it will be going up and in this just tragic awful story coming out of miami-dade in florida over the weekend a tragic news coming from pea ridge in arkansas as an officer with the pea ridge police department kevin apple was killed over the weekend and he was killed in the line of duty more than 30 law enforcement vehicles helped take his body to the Arkansas State Crime Lab in Little Rock for the body of Kevin Apple as he was killed Saturday while attempting to stop a car that was being pursued by the Rogers, Arkansas Police Department at a gas station. And in the attempt to stop this car, the car hit the officer's patrol vehicle and attempted to flee the scene. While fleeing, the driver of the vehicle hit Officer Apple Two suspects have been arrested in connection with the incident involving Officer Apple. Shona Cash and Elijah Andazola arrested and both faced several charges, including reckless driving and capital murder. And I see their mugshots there coming from northwest Arkansas. It's just a scary-looking pair there. But, again, this officer from the Pea Ridge, Arkansas Police Department, again, as he was helping out Rogers Police in Arkansas, Officer Apple killed in the line of duty over the weekend. Our thoughts to his family and others there in Pea Ridge, Arkansas. 
Here's an update from 1964, case files of those three civil rights workers that were killed in Neshoba County near Philadelphia, Mississippi. Case files from way back in 64 are now being made public. Never before seen case files, which includes photos and other records documenting the investigation into the slayings of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. And that, of course, helped lead to the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And that, by the way, act passed and went into law this week back in 1964. It's been the subject of lots of documentaries and movies. The film Mississippi Burning, specifically about this case from 1964. And these materials, which were sealed from 1964 until 2007, then were transferred to the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. As of last week, they're now available for viewing in the public area of the Winter Archives building in Jackson, Mississippi. The records include case files, FBI memoranda, research notes, and federal informant reports and witness testimonies. There are also photographs of the exhumation of the victims' bodies and subsequent autopsies, along with aerial photographs of the burial site, according to announcement from the MDAH, Mississippi Department of Archives and History. But yet, this is one of the most publicized and well-known cases going back to the Civil Rights era. And remember, that's just where President Johnson ordered sailors from, I think, Biloxi? perhaps to come up and help assist in the swamps of the Pearl River around Neshoba County to look for the bodies and or the car, and they ended up finding the car, and then they ended up finding the bodies in a a dam that was being built there outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi, as this happened after a deputy sheriff in 1964 arrested the three men on a traffic charge, then released them after alerting a mob, and then the governor at that time, called it a hoax and the senator from mississippi jim eastland told president lyndon johnson it was a publicity stunt before their bodies ended up being found in that earthen dam and then 19 men indicted on federal charges in 1967 seven were convicted of violating the victim's civil rights none served more than six years in prison and it's led to further investigations and one man ended up being in prison and died in prison back in 19 or rather 2018 and that was edgar ray killen a kkk leader of the 60s and he was convicted on manslaughter charges by then attorney general jim hood of mississippi but again the story this week is case files from this famous civil rights case being made public for the first time and likely going to be used to make another film or documentary or something like that coming from Mississippi. A court has tossed lawsuits against Academy Sports, and this happened following the Sutherland Springs, Texas church shooting. The Texas Supreme Court on Friday threw out four lawsuits against Academy Sports and Outdoors because that is where the gunman evidently bought the weaponry used to kill more than two dozen people back in 2016. And Academy Sports and Outdoors allegedly sold a gun to Devin Kelly, the shooter, back in 2016 at a San Antonio area academy sports and outdoor. And the survivors 
of that 2017 mass killing are now not able to sue, according to the Texas Supreme Court, the chain store because the chain store sold that gunman the rifle that used was used by the 26-year-old in the attack, and the shooter killed himself during a chase after the shooting. But some closure there, even though it's not what the survivors of, again, more than two dozen people killed back in 2017 after this gunman took the lives of people in church there as he had purchased a Ruger AR-556 semi-automatic rifle with a 30-round magazine. And the family's hoping to maybe sue the retail store for that. I guess the Supreme Court's saying that stores can't be responsible for what the people who buy those things go out and do. I, I haven't read the case. Also, news out of Texas and also some legal news out of the Lone Star State. If you remember back during the election of 2020, there was one time when there was a Joe Biden bus traveling. I don't even know if he was in the bus, but he was traveling as a candidate, or his bus was, in the San Antonio area. And it was traveling from San Antonio to Austin. And that bus got swarmed by Trump-supporting trucks and other vehicles flying Trump flags and things like that. And now civil rights organizations who were part of that Biden campaign caravan last fall are suing they filed two federal lawsuits with allegations that local law enforcement failed to respond to efforts to intimidate them by these Trump flying pickup trucks that swarmed their Biden bus. And this happened on October 30th when Trump flying flag flying cars and pickup trucks essentially surrounded this bus going down the interstate. It wasn't like they had them stopped and they're now suing for intimidation. The incident led Democrats to cancel an event later in the day, and then President Donald Trump criticized the FBI at the time after the agency said it was investigating. But they're filing a lawsuit against local law enforcement as well as, I think, some of the people driving these vehicles. Nobody got hurt. I guess it's their constitutional right to go flying Trump flags right next to a Biden bus. Seems like a somewhat frivolous lawsuit to me. Here's a lady that loves the attention, and she is mad at someone else who gets even more attention than she does in the halls of Congress, and that's Marjorie Green, the congressman from North Georgia. And she was at a Trump campaign rally. President Trump had his first really big political rally since leaving office, and it happened in Ohio over the weekends. It was Saturday night. He was on stage for almost two hours doing what he does, Trump being Trump. But before he hit the stage, Congressman Marjorie Green went before the crowd there in Ohio and really, really got him fired up. And she said things like, quote, talking about her colleague, Representative Alexandria Cortez of New York, calling her, saying, calling her out, saying, quote, she's not an American. She really doesn't embrace our American ways, is what Green said about her fellow congressman. And then Green went on to add, you know, you want to know why? She has something called the Green New Deal. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody knows that. And then she referred to that plan as being pitched by the little communists from New York City. And Ocasio-Cortez has also been very critical of the freshman congressman from North Georgia. 
and it's just getting a little bit out of control, a little bit out of control. In fact, Cortez responded over the weekend with a tweet that says, first of all, I'm taller than her. Uh, kind of sophomore, both of them, but Green really does not like Ocasio Cortez, who is five feet six inches tall. Green is five foot three. So Cortez is bigger than the Republican. How about that? Yeah, they need to have a maybe a, a public, uh, not necessarily one to get hurt or even killed in, but they need to have a public uh, duel and do it for charity. That'd be that'd be something worth watching. Something noble coming from Washington D.C. for a change. We got more headlines. We're going to get into that. Stay tuned. This is the Y'all Show. Talk with an accent on all things Southern. In fact, we've got some higher education news coming up after the break. There is a brand new campus of the University of Tennessee, UTS. What the heck is that? I'll let you know. Plus, higher education news coming out of Northern Virginia as ancestors of slaves that were working on a college campus are going to get reparations. I'll have that info coming up right after the break. if that's the fight song of the newest campus of the university of tennessee but it just might be welcome back it's y'all and we are talking about what's going on across the southeast and we have a brand new campus of the university of tennessee as it is adding its first new campus in 50 years at the end of last week the university of tennessee board of trustees voting to add martin methodist college that is in pulaski tennessee and it is now part of the UT system. And Martin Methodist College is no more, at least not in name, as it has a whole new name there in Giles County. And that is right on the Tennessee-Alabama border, roughly 45 miles northwest of Huntsville, Alabama, is where Pulaski is. And it's about an hour, 15, 20 minutes south of Nashville. But in a meeting, the board confirmed that Martin Methodist College will become this latest campus starting July 1st. And the new name of the college is the University of Tennessee Southern. They can't name it Tennessee Martin, which is, again, this college was named Martin Methodist College. There's already a University of Tennessee Martin in West Tennessee. And so pretty confusing. I'm sure 
the UT Martin campus is tickled. They're tickled orange and blue or orange and black that Martin Methodist College will no longer be called MMC because I know that had to be confusing for both colleges to have two schools in the same state that had the name Martin as part of it. So it is now the University of Tennessee Southern. And we love our Southern schools. So way to go, UT, by naming this school UT Southern. Woo, I love that. Now let me tell you a little bit about Martin Methodist, because it is sad when a college goes away. This college was founded in 1870, and then for 150 years, a private institution until Friday of last week. And for many years, it was a junior college, but it became a baccalaureate institution many years ago. And the college also had an MBA program, and it had various sports participating as NAI members, NAIA and they were the Red Hawks. And I don't know if they're going to stay Red Hawks or not. They probably will. But this school, again, located in Pulaski, Tennessee, home of Sam Davis, boy hero of the Confederacy, also birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan, Pulaski, Tennessee. I'm sure they're not exactly proud of that. But they are proud of UTS, the latest name of this new branch of the University of Tennessee, and it again becomes official July 1st. And what a change, as if you were a student at Martin Methodist College, your tuition was $26,000. And now that this school is now going to be part of the University of Tennessee system, tuition is expected to drop 61%. So it now will cost you $10,200 to be a student at the now UT Southern campus in Pulaski, Tennessee. So there you have it. Some big news if you're living in, let's say, Lincoln County, which is Fetville, or perhaps Giles County, Wayne County, all those counties right along the Alabama line and southern middle Tennessee. You now have a branch of the University of Tennessee, which I've always wanted to know why UT, which is, of course, this gigantic college in the state of Tennessee, they did not have a presence at least directly connected to them in Middle Tennessee. They have two presence, uh, their presence felt twice in West Tennessee with the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis where people go to be doctors and and not lawyers. <laughs> they go to be doctors and nurses and in the health field industry in Memphis. And they fly that bright orange UT flag proudly there right on Union Avenue where the UT Health Science Center is located and then of course ut has ut martin and that is in west tennessee they have in chattanooga ut chattanooga and then of course the the main campus in knoxville the university of tennessee the flagship there and now with this edition of ut southern and pulaski they now have a presence in middle tennessee now tennessee like a lot of states have they kind of have different uh, divisions of higher education in the state and so you have the university of tennessee system and then i don't even know what the other system's called but that's where schools like mtsu etsu and the university of memphis kind of fall under a different system but now there's the big orange presence felt in pulaski with the addition of this school the university of tennessee southern Home of the Red Hawks.
Pulaski, Tennessee. All right. Let's tell you about a story out of Northern Virginia, Virginia Theological Seminary. It has been around a long, long time as it started, I think, back in the 1820s is the technical start date of this school that was started to be a seminary for the Episcopal Church. And they've had for generations a lot of black laborers, many of which in the early days were enslaved there at Virginia Theological Seminary. And even beyond slavery, there were forced labor there at the campus of this college there in Northern Virginia. And now the school is doing something about it. They've created reparations and ancestors who were enslaved workers at Virginia Theological Seminary are going to get $2,100 a year in reparations going forward as they have been able to raise nearly $2 million to pay reparations. The school setting aside that amount to, again, pay the descendants of slaves who worked at this college in the Civil War era before the Civil War started and now people are actually getting their checks of the from the Virginia Theological Seminary and its effort to pay back those who were enslaved at that campus in Virginia, Virginia Theological Seminary. That's a lot of money every year. Imagine getting over $2,000 a year for the rest of your life for the hardship endured by your 5th, 6th, 7th great-grandparent. And that's what this seminary is doing now to make good, to help out, to put a positive spin. This seminary, by the way, is literally a stone's throw from the nation's capital. It is located in Alexandria, right across the Potomac from Washington, D.C. And again, it's the second oldest accredited Episcopal seminary in the United States. And it's the largest Episcopal seminary in the country. Virginia Theological Seminary, and because of its nasty, nasty, ugly history, they're trying to make good, to look good, and to do that, to kind of right the wrongs, reparations now being paid to descendants of those who were enslaved at this seminary, founded in the 1820s, located on a 80-acre campus in Alexandria, a lovely-looking place there, this private private seminary that has roughly 220 students studying there. And actually, one of their alumni is a guy named Francis Scott Key, as he was part of a group there at St. Paul's Episcopal Church there. And they formed a society for a education of pious young men for the ministry of the Protestant Episcopal Church in Maryland and Virginia. I think they wanted to shorten that a little bit down to Virginia Theological Seminary. But this school, again, paying reparations now to descendants of slaves in Alexandria, Virginia. In South Carolina, a Beaufort County Sheriff's deputy has been fired for taunting noise opponent with his loud truck. Deputy Christopher Capps told an internal investigator he was wrong to taunt the man with his truck that had 38-inch tires on it. This is rather redneck, as we would say here in the South. And this deputy fired for what he did. He intentionally drove his loud truck past the home of a man who asked county officials for a noise ordinance. 
and according to the local paper, the Island Packet of Hilton Head, the former deputy told this investigator he was wrong and he should have been held to a higher standard as a deputy. After Caps drove by this home with the man who asked for a noise ordinance to be in place, the man chased the deputy and his truck for more than six miles before they were both pulled over by other officers. <laughs> so a concerned citizen asking for a noise ordinance ticks off a sheriff's deputy who drives by in his really loud truck and makes this man get out of bed maybe and go chasing after the sheriff's deputy who was driving a truck with 38-inch tires on it. And now Christopher Capps, who did not evidently do anything illegal but didn't do anything ethical, correctly, ethic-wise, and he has been fired by the Beaufort County, South Carolina Sheriff's Department. He needs to go work maybe at a dirt track somewhere in the low country, and he'll fit right in with loud noise and big old 38-inch tires on his truck. <laughs> but I do I, I do feel sorry for the homeowner there. There is no excuse for some of these cars and trucks and motorcycles to sound as loud as they do. I don't know why some people get their excitement from a revving engine or squealing tires. As much as I love the South, we got some real knuckleheads, in my opinion, when it comes to that kind of silly business. And, and maybe I just miss. Maybe I haven't done it enough myself to say, you know, that is fun. I want to go out here and squeal my tires and tear up the rubber on my tires. I just paid, by the way, last week, I just got a new set of four tires for my vehicle. And it was around $600, and I think I got a good deal on it. I think. Brand new 70,000-mile tires. And I don't want to go out squealing my tires and burning rubber and replace my tires any sooner than I have to. But evidently, we got some real idiots out here that just think that's the greatest thing ever. And therefore, we have stories like this out of Beaufort, South Carolina, making headlines on the Y'all Show Monday edition. When we come back, we're going to be making headlines. We're going to declare a national champion in college sports, and we're going to do that right after the break. You don't want to miss it. Breaking news from right here on the show all about the South, plus the latest on the NBA playoffs and the PGA Tour. This is Talk with a Southern Accent with your host, John Rawl. The class and the dignity 
of which these men handle that decision. The second thing that will never be forgotten is tonight, coming back on this bus, and this memory will be etched in our minds forever. Goosebumps right there at Dokefield in Raleigh over the weekend. NC State back at Raleigh following a trip to the College World Series. I'm John Rawl. This is the Southern Sports Update here on this Monday. And NC State, their run in Omaha comes to an end because of COVID-19. And Elliot Avent, you heard him there at the microphone at Dokefield at Dale Park after the Wolfpack baseball team returned to Raleigh over the weekend, saying that this team is a national championship team. And you know what? Here on the Y'all Show, we've done this one time in our company's history. 2004 was the year, and Y'all Magazine and Y'all.com declared the Auburn Tigers of 2004 a national champion because they deserve to be a national champion of college football. If you go back and look at what they did, and then they were left out, they were snubbed, and they let the committee let USC play Oklahoma for a national championship. Auburn should have had the chance to play, and they got kind of messed over. Y'all made that War Eagle team a national champion team of 2004, and we're doing it again. We are declaring NC State a college baseball national champion after what they've done. They went to Fayetteville. They knocked off the number one team in the country just a few weeks ago. And then they went to Omaha, won their first two games, beat Vanderbilt. They did lose to Vanderbilt on Friday, but they did that with 13 players as the virus really hit them hard. And so I'm not saying that when Vanderbilt and MSU get together and they play, they can't be a national champion of who wins that series. And the first game is set for this evening, by the way, between Vandy and Mississippi State. But NC State deserves credit. And they deserve to be a national champion, and that's why y'all is proud to declare the Wolfpack a national champion of college baseball here in 2021. And to further to further explain my declaration here of the Wolfpack baseball team and Elliot Avent, what he's done there in Raleigh, I'm going to rewind back to June 4th. It was on June 4th on this very show that yours truly, John Rawl, and my college baseball insider who was with me, a very, very knowledgeable fellow named Knowlton, we were on here getting you ready for the start of the college baseball playoffs. You had 64 teams set to start this thing back on June 4th, and here is an audio clip, audio evidence, of what this fellow right here said about the Wolfpack baseball team on June 4th and what ended up happening, and why they deserve to be national champions, and why we here at y'all deserve a little bit of credit now for NC State's incredible baseball run. Here is a clip again of the June 4th y'all show. 
Who's going to win the college baseball championship? I, I think Arkansas is going to stumble. I think it's going to be someone you're not really expecting. I well, think he just said Fairfield was forty-seven and three. Yeah, well, they choked in their conference tournament. I, I don't uh, even know if they lost a game until they got to the conference tournament. I'm not. I'm not really sure, but I, I'm not picking Fairfield to win. I'm going to go with a team you might not expect to win the college baseball national championship. Uh, I'm going to go with. Hmm. I'll go with NC State. Nah. You don't think so? Mm-mm. You don't think they can do it? I'm I'm going to go Mm-mm. with the Wolfpack. I'm going to really pull a shocker here. Well, I think Alabama will win that regional. You think? What regional are they even in? I don't even know. Ruston. The Ruston? That's where NC State is? And Alabama? Mm-hmm. And the homestanding Bulldogs of Louisiana Tech? Yeah, they could. But Elliott Avent's team is... Doing pretty well. And the ACC hasn't gotten a lot of attention from baseball this year. I'm going to go with the, the pack. State wolf pack, that is. And again, that was from June 4th. If you don't believe that's exactly what yours truly said, go back and look at the Y'all archives, and that's available at y'all.com. Congratulations, NC State, a national champion, according to Y'all, and they, they have a chance to share that championship as Mississippi State and Vanderbilt begin the College World Series Finals. That's set for 7 Eastern, 6 Central on ESPN2. Game 1 is this evening. Game 2 will be on Tuesday. And if they have to play a Game 3, that will be Wednesday. Kudos to Vanderbilt. They It's not their fault that NC State couldn't suit up and play. And Vanderbilt takes advantage of the situation. They have a chance to go back and repeat as national champions. Mississippi State now, drama there from Chris Lamonis's ball club as they did lose on Friday to Texas. They bounced back Saturday and had a walk-off win in the ninth inning. Great pitching there by their reliever out of Cumming, Georgia, and good base running, a timely base hit, and MSU, the Diamond Dogs, now playing for their second national championship in college baseball. This is a program that has still not won a college baseball national championship. This is a university that has still not won a national championship in any sport. And they've played for several different national championships in the past five to ten years. So is MSU due? Are they going to pull off the school's first championship? It's looking pretty good if you're a Bulldog fan. And I believe Duty Noble North is now residing in Omaha, Nebraska at TD Ameritrade Park. It's Mississippi State and Vanderbilt to decide the other national champion of college baseball. LSU's in the news for the bad reasons from their football team standpoint. Coach Ed Orgeron named at the end of last week as a defendant in an amended Title IX lawsuit as this lawsuit is being served against Ed Orgeron as a defendant for failing to properly report an allegation of rape that, according to a copy of an updated lawsuit obtained by the staff at ESPN, as a woman named Ashlyn Robertson is one of three additional women to have joined the lawsuit, which states that in the fall of 2016, Robertson told her new boyfriend, who had been recruited to play at LSU, that then-Tigers running back Darius Geis raped her. According to the lawsuit, Robertson's boyfriend disclosed the rape to Ed Orgeron, who allegedly responded by telling Robertson's boyfriend not to be upset because, quote, 
Everybody's girlfriend sleeps with other people. That's what this is alleging here. And Ed Orgeron added as a defendant in an amended Title IX lawsuit that's being put forward in Louisiana at the current time. To golf over the weekend, Harris English won the Travelers in Connecticut as he had a dramatic eight-hole playoff, and he ended up winning on the eighth hole with a birdie where his opponent ended up getting a par there. Harris English, the Chattanooga-educated golfer who lives on the Georgia coast, wins the Travelers Championship, his second win of the year, and the young man Kramer who did such a great job there for the great uh, golf being played by the guy who had come up through the ranks. He was actually Jordan Spieth's roommate and teammate at the University of Texas. And in the end, he was not able to end up winning, even though both players, Kramer Hickok, had a chance to win multiple times and failed. And he is still yet to win on the PGA Tour. But he looked mighty good. Had a lot of fans. Pretty exciting times there at the Travelers. But Harris English wins for the fourth time in his career, and most recently winning the Travelers Championship on the PGA Tour. The Lady Golfers were in Atlanta, and they played at the KMPG PGA Championship over the weekend. Nellie Corda out of Bradenton, Florida, she walks away winner. Her first major, and the 22-year-old golfer, who is the daughter of former golfer Peter Corda, she ends up winning. Her sister's also on the LPGA Tour and Nellie Corda wins by three strokes over American Solace at the course there at Johns Creek, the Atlanta Golf Club, and a big win for her. She is the number one golfer on the LPGA Tour right now. Her sister is number five, Jessica. So you have two incredible golfers in the same family. Both of these golfers, by the way, Nellie and Jessica, have just been added to the U.S. Olympic team, and so look for Corda times two whenever the Tokyo Olympics go down in just a few weeks. And then also over the weekend, you had the NBA taking place, and it was a big win on Sunday for the Milwaukee Bucks in Atlanta as the Bucks won 113-102, to taking a 2-1 to series lead as they had a big, big performance there. And the Atlanta Hawks sharpshooter went down with an ankle injury not sure exactly when or if he's going to be back in the long in the lineup for the Atlanta NBA franchise, but the Bucks with a great, great fourth quarter performance, and they were able to hang on and get the victory. Trey Young says his ankle is sore and hurting, but with the right medical team looking at it, he just might be available when these two get together for Game Four, Eastern Conference Finals. Now, Bucks with a two-one series lead in that one. And then you have coming up here in the NBA on this day, you have all uh, the playoffs continuing. And what's scheduled tonight is the Clippers and Suns have game five. Phoenix now with a 3-1 series lead. They can take this thing. They can take the series and win it with a win at Phoenix Suns Arena in Phoenix this weekend or, or this evening Suns Clips, again, Phoenix with the 3-1 series lead. That game tipping off at 9 Eastern, 8 Central on ESPN. That's a quick look at sports activity here on this Y'all Show Monday edition. We'll take a break, come right back, and have a quick look at some Southern history to wrap up this Hour 1. You're listening to Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent.
We're back here wrapping up this first hour of Talk with a Southern Accent. This week marks the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This was an act to enforce the constitutional right to vote, to confer jurisdiction upon the district courts of the United States of America to provide injunctive relief against discrimination in public accommodations, to authorize the Attorney General to institute suits to protect constitutional rights in public facilities and public education, to extend the Commission on Civil Rights to prevent discrimination in federally assisted programs, to establish a Commission on Equal Opportunity Employees for Employment and for other purposes. Again, this went into effect this week in 1964 when President Lyndon Baines Johnson made this official by signing it into law at the White House in 1964. Again, passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then just a few years later, you had ratified in 1971 this week the 26th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and this prohibits the states and the federal government from using age as a reason for denying the right to vote to citizens of the United States who are at least 18 years old. So it gave 18-year-olds the right to vote, and that was the 26th Amendment passed this week in 1971 and there's been discussion about lowering that thing even more going forward born this week in 1831 john bell hood john bell hood born in owingsville kentucky and he ended up being an officer in the united states army and then ultimately a confederate general he served at uh, went to west point before entering the u.s army in 1853 and then he served as a general in the Confederate Army, and he commanded a Texas Infantry Regiment, the 4th Texas, before ending up being the Army of Tennessee commander in the American Civil War. And as a part of that, he led troops in the Atlanta Campaign and in the battles of Franklin and Nashville, a devastating two battles there for the Confederacy there. And John Bell Hood, who was severely injured in battle, ended up losing his arm, and maybe part of a leg, and ended up being very, very kind of a devastating leader for the Confederate cause. And he was born this week in 1831 in Kentucky, died in 1879 at age 48. So he lived through the war, died some 14 years after the war ended in New Orleans, Louisiana. Also this week in music history, it was this week back in 2003 that Reuben Studdard of Birmingham beat North Carolinian Clay Aiken in American Idols Season 2. Reuben Studdard, who's now 42 years old. Reuben was born in Frankfurt, West Germany. How about that? Born to a country that doesn't even exist anymore, technically. Reuben Studdard. And what has he been up to these days? As we've not really heard much about him. Well, he's been involved in acting. Did you know he made a cameo appearance in Scooby-Doo 2? So that's one thing he's been. He's also been on Broadway as he's been working up there since 2018. On and off, I'm sure the pandemic has really kind of uh, put a kind of stoppage to his acting career. But still working on music. And he's been long compared to Luther Vandross. In fact, put out a tribute album to Luther Vandross. And he's been very active. He ended up getting a relationship with a lady before divorcing in 2012. 
and he's received a Master of Arts degree, an honorary degree from his alma mater, Alabama A&M, in Normal, Alabama, just north of Huntsville. He also a member of Phi Mu Alpha Sinfonia Fraternity, Phi Mu, or PM, I don't know what they call it, frankly, I better not get into the Greek talk here since I'm not a Greek myself, but Ruben Stoddard ended up winning that. That was a little bit of a surprise because Clay Aiken had so many loyal fans back in 2003 whenever he made his debut. Both of these guys making their national debut, but Ruben went on to have a pretty big song out in 2004, Sorry 2004. That ended up being a number one song on the adult R&B chart, and he last charted in 2014 with a song called Love, Love, Love. The Birmingham resident, Ruben Stuttered, winner of the 2003 Season 2 American Idol. And lastly, as we talk about Southern history and more here on the Y'all, we'll keep it in the music genre for a story here. And this one is about, in this week in 1978, what were y'all doing? What were you driving? What did you have in your car back in 1978 if you happened to be alive? Well, chances are, if you had enough money, you had one of these darn things, and this song here means a lot to you. Ready for it? Right. Breaker one nine. This here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, Big Ben? Come on. Uh, yeah, ten four, Big Ben for sure. For sure. <laughs> it was this week in 1978. The film Conway came out, and that followed the great kind of big song out by C.W. McCall called Convoy, and that had been a big hit back in 1975, and they turned it into a movie. Chris Christopherson. Ali McGraw, Ernest Borgnine, all starring in this song, in this movie that was based on the song, and it was a cult hit. $45 million at the box office, and it came out this week in 1978, the movie Convoy. We'll take a break. More of the Y'all Show is coming your way. you got a whole other hour of Southern fun. Break one now. Man, oh man, oh man, we are kind of in the fast lane, talking everything Southern here on this first of the week edition of Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent. I'm John Rawl. Thank you so much for tuning us in. We have got a fantastic second hour, so let me tell you what's on tap. We're going to be serving up here in hour number two, more headlines from across the Southeast. And we've got a couple of passages as a creator of the great TV show Cops has died and he had a connection to the South. We'll let you know about that. Also, a former Skid Row lead singer has died at the age of 55. He has a connection to Dixie as well. We'll let you know about all that here in our headlines. Also, they have found, they have found Joseph Walker's grave in Louisiana. The 13th governor of the Pelican State's grave's been missing, and they finally found it. I'll let you know about Joseph Walker of the Pelican State. All that is part of our headlines here, hour number two. We'll also have, later in the hour, Jerry Short. He's our Takapola storyteller. He's going to be dropping by. Always fun to catch up with him. And before the hour 
is in the books. We're going to have Kobe Bennett drop by with a southern accent on southern food. All that coming up. And before the show's over today, we're going to keep the fun coming in Hour 3 with more sports news. And we'll also let you know about the incredible story of Richard Mentor Johnson, the nation's ninth vice president, a Kentuckian, and quite a love story. A tragic love story that I'll be sharing when we get to that portion of today's y'all show. If you want to get involved, our number is 803-816-1170. Our website is y'all.com. It is the South's homepage, y'all.com. Go there, learn, live, love the website all about the Southeast. Looking at headlines, tunneling continuing in Miami-Dade in Florida as rescuers are searching frantically to get any kind of survivors out of that terrible Champlain Tower that fell on Thursday of last week. The death toll right now around nine, and they're really, it's getting pretty critical. They've got the dog sniffers in there looking for bodies, looking for living bodies, hopefully, and it's just an awful scene there with 150 people roughly still missing, and the news is not good from South Florida right now as they're frantically looking for any survivors after that condo collapse from Thursday of last week. A Pea Ridge, Arkansas officer killed in the line of duty over the weekend as he was assisting a Bentonville police officer and his body now taken to Little Rock for an investigation. And Officer Apple killed Saturday while attempting to stop a car that was being pursued by the Rogers, Arkansas Police Department. Ended up where the vehicle tried to flee the scene, and while fleeing, the driver of that vehicle hit Officer Apple of Pea Ridge, Officer Kevin Apple, Pea Ridge, Arkansas, killed in the line of duty over the weekend. We remember this hero in blue. John Langley, a creator of Cops, Cops which ran on TV for decades, John Langley has died at a road race in Mexico, he was 78 years old as he died in Baja, Mexico of an apparent heart attack during the coast-to-coast Ensenada-San Felipe 250 off-road race. The 78-year-old, what a way to go, <laughs> dying in a road race in Mexico. Cops was among the first reality series that ever hit the TV when it debuted in 1989 It lasted 32 seasons. Langley and his production partner, Malcolm Barber, had shot the idea for years, and then they found a place where it would air, the brand-new upstart Fox TV network, and they began airing it back in 1989, and cops followed police all over the country, and they oftentimes went and chased the bad guys, And it was a great TV show. It ran on Fox from 1989 to 2013, and then it went on to Spike TV, which ended up being renamed the Paramount Network. And then after all the complete nonsense of the George Floyd reaction, one of the things that got cut was Cops. Cops was killed from TV. And I know personally... That was one of the highlights of my life. 
was to sit at home. I think it was on the Fox, the days of Fox, whenever they would carry this on Saturday night, brand new episodes. They'd have a old episode followed by a new episode. And I'd go get me a pizza, and I'd watch Cops. And boy, that was great TV. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. And for years, that was kind of my highlights of Saturday night was a brand new pizza and a brand new episode of Cops. And unfortunately, that series, because of systemic allegations from the Black Lives Movement of how shows like this portrayed blacks in a negative way, it was killed. And so was Live PD, another show that I really started to watch a lot here in recent years. But Mr. Langley, John Langley, creator of Cops, dying over the weekend. And his connection to the South was he was a native of Oklahoma City, born there and ended up going on to California, raised in L.A., but born in Oklahoma City and now dying at age 78. A Texan has died, and he was a front man for Skid Row as singer Johnny Solinger of this hard rock band died from liver failure. He was 55 years old. Skid Row, rock band, formed in New Jersey back in 1986, and they went on to have pretty big songs, both in and out of the country, such as Youth Gone Wild, 18 in Life, I Remember You, Monkey Business, Wasted Time, and more. Skid Row, big-time rock and roll band. And now the lead singer, a guy who was lead singer for some 15 years, has died of liver ailments. And I'm looking for some of the songs that he would have been a lead singer of. I think his time as lead singer followed most of some, I mean, most bands have comings and goings of band members. I would say their biggest single, Skid Row, was 18 in Life. That got to number four on the U.S. chart back in 1989. He did not co-write that song. but it was a, It's a big one there for this heavy metal band, Skid Row. And again, the former lead singer, Johnny Solinger, dying of liver failure at age 55 over the weekend. So unfortunate news there from the entertainment world. After being missing for more than 60 years, the gravesite of Louisiana's 13th governor has now been found in Rapides Parish. That is in the central part of the state in the Alexandria area. Joseph Walker served as Louisiana's governor from 1850 to 1853. 1850 to 1853, the decade before the American Civil War. And historians found the gravesite off Bayou Rapides Road, and actually, this is in the city of Alexandria. After searching for this landmark since the 1950s, and they're hoping a historical marker will be placed at the site. How in the world could they have not seen this thing? Since, what did I say? The 50s? I've recovered, I've gone in and restored a grave site from the early, early 1800s. A person that lived in the 1700s died, and I went in and restored a whole graveyard as part of my Eagle Scout service project and it was rough I mean this thing had been overgrown it took me and my fellow scouts about 
two weeks of cleaning up, but boy, it looked great. In fact, I saw it for the first time in years, the gravesite that I cleaned up last summer. Looks great, and it looks better than when I did it. I had to go in there and, and kind of brave the elements and clean that brush out, but I guess it's pretty scary there in Rapides Parish, Louisiana, and it doesn't help whenever the family home was burnt to the ground probably by the Northerners passing through in 1864, and therefore you didn't have a, maybe a home to serve as a landmark whenever you're looking for the grave of, again, the governor of your state. But they found him, They found it's a good-looking, actually the headstone that I see looks pretty well-preserved. Who was Joseph Marshall Walker? He was born in New Orleans in 1786 when it was actually a colony of Spain. So he was not even born in America. He was born in what was called New Spain, New Orleans, New Spain, born in 1784. And he actually went to Mexico and joined, this man joined the Spanish army in 1807, serving as a lieutenant of dragoons and later becoming master of the military school at Chihuahua. But when the War of 1812 happened, he got back to New Orleans and enlisted in the Louisiana State Militia where he fought against the British in the Battle of New Orleans, then became a member of the Democratic Party, elected in the office and the U. Uh, in the Louisiana House of Representatives, then went on to serve as a brigadier general in the state militia, served as governor when he was elected there in 1850. He became the first Louisiana governor inaugurated in the new state capital at Baton Rouge. As governor, he established a free public school system for white children and ended up dying in 1856, after his term of governor came to an end in 1853 and was buried again on his plantation in the Alexandria area. And they just now found it after being missing some 70 years. The gravesite of Louisiana's former governor found in Rapides Parish, Louisiana. Now that is a story. And if you like history, we're not done talking history on today's Y'all Show. In Hour 3, I'm going to tell you about another character from the mid-19th century who ended up being not a governor, but a vice president of the United States and has quite an interesting love life that I'll share with you when we get to that part of the third hour. Up next, though, we have an interesting character from the 21st century that's going to be coming aboard. It is the Takapola storyteller Jerry Short. And I can't wait to talk to him. And you know what? We're going to do that next. This is the Y'all Show. with a southern accent we are y'all and i'm john raw back in now for takapola storyteller time as we get this week up and going 
And if you want to get involved and maybe have your own storytelling experience that Jerry Short might need to know about, we welcome that. Our number is 803-816-1170. You can call, you can text that number at your convenience, 803-816-1170. And guess what? Phone lines have been extended now to Takapola. So in Takapola, they can take your calls and your feedback All you got to do is call again, 803-816-1170. Let us go test those communication lines in Takapola out right now. And welcome back onto the Y'all Show, our Takapola storyteller, Jerry Short. Hello, Jerry. Hey, John. What's happening up in uh, your part of the world? What what is that telephone number there in Takapola? You know, it's kind of like they used to do in the movies and TV. You just give three fives, like uh, one five five five, one two one two or something. And uh, that's about all I can give you. Do you remember a child as a child not having a telephone? Can I remember not? <laughs> <laughs> I had a daddy that he'd go spend ten thousand dollars for a Larry Domino the third pole Herford uh, steer from Hop Moore's, same place Rita Hayward bought hers, and we didn't have a phone when I left home in '64. Are you serious? I am very serious. And uh, my grandparents didn't have a phone. And we had to call neighbors to uh, talk to them. And uh, it was really, he could have had a phone, but he wasn't going to pay for a phone. He had some cattle to buy. He had two service stations. He had a phone in his service station. Uh, I say he did. (laughs) I wasn't allowed to use it, probably. But uh, now we... uh, I got my first talent, you know, and it extends on beyond uh, graduating from uh, high school. It extends on with me. Uh, I guess I actually got my first telephone after I was married. And uh, that number was uh, 1822 was the last part of it. But uh, anyway. No, let me uh, give it a call real quick. 1822. <laughs> And it's a two two in front of it, but uh, and somebody does have that number now, I think. But uh, anyway, I kept it for a long, long time. I probably kept it thirty years, maybe after I finally got a phone. Probably got it in '68, uh, hmm. or uh, I know when we first got married, we lived in Memphis. We didn't have a phone in our uh, condo. <laughs> No so you, you moved from Tacabola to the big city of Memphis, and you still didn't have a telephone. Still didn't have one. We went to, from my wife to call her parents in South Louisiana. She had to go to a uh, pay phone on the corner uh, to make that phone call around uh, downtown Memphis, right off of uh, uh, Crosstown in Madison. There was a pay phone by a convenience store. Probably, I would assume, even in the 60s, maybe not the safest place for a woman to go out be making telephone calls. Safe then. It was yeah, well, safe. it was. Yeah, it really was. I mean, we didn't worry about anything in those days. You know, and you, you talk about phones like that. It, uh, they had phones, you know, when now everybody I dated had phones. I may be the, I might be the only person that didn't have a phone. You know, I know it's sad, but true. Well, I'm kind of jealous, Jerry, because I grew up in a, in a world where we had telephones in every house, and uh-huh. as you are maybe a little younger than me, just about everybody's had a cell phone. And you know 
getting somebody's telephone number and or calling them is a big part of the whole dating thing. So you had a option back in the 60s if a woman or girl said, Jerry, why haven't you called me? You got a pretty good excuse. I didn't have a lot of those questions thrown my way, but uh, it's probably best that I just hitchhiked to another town and, and saw them in person sat on the front porch. But uh, I tell you one interesting uh, sideline side of that phone situation. Even after we got married, phones were so expensive. You just a uh, phone call in, you know, what we did, it wasn't like today. You went through the operator. And you could call, collect, person to person, and all this stuff. So uh, when uh, I was first married for a long time, and everybody did, it wasn't just me. Uh, if we traveled somewhere and we had been visiting in-laws, and when we got home, uh, I would call back. I had a phone then. But I would call their number, and I would ask to speak to my name, person to person. And the operator, you could hear the operator. The operator would say, uh, I have a uh, collect call from uh, Mr. Uh, Jerry Short. Will you accept it? And they would say, no, he's not here right now. So, okay. And then I'd say, okay, operator, I'll try later. So later, you know, I didn't try later, but that informed those people that I called that we made it home safe. So it saved that probably a $5 call. Oh, was that much? Always high. Phones were high. I mean, it was unbelievable. But the phone you call, know, didn't telephones actually, weren't they owned by the phone company, the actual devices? Yeah. yeah. You had one, to rent them? Uh, let's see. I didn't have that much experience in purchasing them or anything. But uh, but didn't they rent them out? Wasn't that a fee part yeah. of your, your phone bill? Yeah. yeah, I think so. You did pay for the phone. and uh, But I kept that phone. And then I said, I went to work for International Paper Company. Well, made that timber company I went to work for. We had a phone there and uh, a vehicle ran in the bottom of the building one night and it caved to the end of my office, ended up on Main Street. And uh, I still got that phone. It was hanging on a wire when I was called to go down there. And I just left the officer. I guess I'd have been hanging down there with it. Hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, I still got that old black, black phone. And I, you know, I enjoy watching old, old shows and old movies and TV series. And you see those kind of phones that we had. But, uh, yeah, it was real expensive. You know, the first phones, uh, you could call for a nickel or a dime in my day. And But you, I, I think I remember the nickel phone. Pay phone? Yeah. Did you put a nickel in on the street? And uh, if you called somebody's house, you could stand there, because I did get in a fight in a town in Louisiana one day, uh, talking to my girlfriend. Uh, at the phone, a guy kept me, he told me that I needed to move on. I'd talked long enough, so it didn't turn out too good for him. Now, today would be the other way around. It wouldn't turn out too good for me. Hmm. But uh, that was a situation. You didn't want to give your spot up on a phone. So uh, phones were really rare, and... Uh, Hey, they're part of America coming along, you know, and uh, lots of people in the country didn't have phones. And, uh, but we, we lived, our farm joined the city limits. And if they had, let's say, village limits. So we're going to, all our neighbors had phones. They'll put it that way. So, uh, every, and my grandmother, my mother's parents had phones. But hey, my daddy, 
and his family, no folks. Hmm. Two, we were too farm, too farming, and too uh, cattlely, and too muley, and too horsebacky. So big changes, huh? Jerry, if it makes you feel any better, just Uh-oh. so I can, I can sort of connect with you. My mother did not have a phone when she was in high school. She didn't have really a indoor plumbing. And she also, unlike you, she didn't even have a car. Golly. Well, I didn't get a car now until I was 18. Okay. And left. You know, and had a good job. I had money, but my daddy wouldn't let me buy a car. And every time I tried to buy a car, he said, you know, I'm not going to be responsible for you. It was just like uh, the uh, when I was going to college, when I was leaving to go to college. That, that kept me from going to college right away because uh, – he said, I'm not going to be responsible for you. And I said, well, I went to Memphis to get a car. And the car salesman, used car salesman, Homer Skelton, he drove the car all the way back to town. And my daddy said, I said, I told you I was going to get a car. I got the money. You know, I worked every summer. I had cows and stuff like that, too. And he said, uh, no, I'm not going to be responsible for you. I said, do you think I'm going to college without a car? No, no way. So we probably had an argument there. <laughs> probably. I, I would probably <laughs> yeah. think you did. Yeah. Jerry we Short is who we're talking to. He's our Takapolo storyteller. And we're trying to get through the old days of communication with him. We're, we've progressed Smoke a little signal. bit. We've Smoke progressed signal. a little bit. And yeah. But Jerry, I want to ask, let's kind of modernize things a little bit, if you don't mind, before we take a break and continue our discussion. We're going to get rather intellectual with you in the next segment. But we have made here at y'all and y'all.com, we have made our second declared national championship in the history of the y'all company. Back in 2004, y'all magazine declared the Auburn Tigers a national champion in college football. That was the, I think last year or next to the last year or something like that. And the way the college football stuff was done in Auburn should have been playing in the national championship. Unfortunately, they missed out. It was Oklahoma and USC playing in the so-called title game. Auburn got left out. Auburn went on and won their bowl game and finished a very good undefeated 2004 season. But we declared them at y'all national champions, right. and they deserve to be national champions under the great coach who became a senator, Tommy Tuberville. One of my personal friends. That's ahead. right. Jerry, we've done it again. Here we have declared this week, and you might have tuned in in the first hour, we have declared the NC State Wolfpack baseball team a college baseball national champion after what happened to them in Omaha. I'm sure you kept up with what happened to the Wolfpack but they're not going to get to play for the so-called championship in Omaha this week as they got eliminated because of the coronavirus and testing positive. This is a team that could have easily won the thing. They didn't lose the national championship. They just didn't have a chance to compete. So we're going to go ahead and declare the Wolfpack a, a national champion. I think it's perfectly fine to have more than one national champion this this year. Well, we've always lived with that in the past before you know, the last 10, 15 years. So it's nothing new. You know, back when I was a big Ole Miss fan, uh, I would declare Ole Miss a national champion a lot of years because they never voted after the regular season. And then we'd go on to the bowl game. I remember one year Minnesota was number one and Ole Miss was number two. Minnesota lost in the Rose Bowl, and we beat LSU pretty bad in a rematch on Billy Cannon's run in the Sugar Bowl. But uh, they didn't declare us national champions. Minnesota retained the national championship. And we retain number two, you know, and that happened three times in 
my years of following uh, Ole Miss football. They uh, had the best team at the end of bowl season, but you didn't go that far. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And they did get a bad deal, I think, uh, on that COVID. You know, and I was talking to a coaching friend of mine today, this afternoon about that. And uh, he, he was, you know, reminding me how unfair it was for the uh, players that uh, – I don't care if you got a bad boy, if you got nine people, you know, go ahead and play. You know, you'll finish a game if you're down to eight people or seven people. I think the you rule might ahead. be eight. You can play baseball mm, with eight yeah, players. Eight. Yeah, you can do that. And so, I mean, go ahead and, and let them play. They let them play the, the game before, if I'm not mistaken. And they had two or three that had tested positive. Uh, but then think about your high schools that it affected during the year. Uh you know, and if you want to go that far back, uh, Ole Miss last year, I mean, I'm not a big Ole Miss backer or anything, but I was in my youth. But let's just say uh, last year they was leading the nation in baseball when they shut it down, collegiate baseball. And uh, I think they were 16-0 and or 16-1 and and uh, leading the nation in about four of those six poles that baseball has. But they just wiped it completely out. And Bianco got uh, – National Coach of the Year in a couple of polls. So, I mean, what do you do? You got this COVID thing? Why not go ahead and play it? You know, it's like uh, football. Southeastern Conference, we got 14 game teams, and you usually played 14 games. And uh, they went on and cut that back to 10. So why not baseball? Why not do it in some other sport like that too? They played 10, and they went on and had a national champion in football. Am I correct? Yes. And uh, so – you know, I, I think uh, North Carolina State, uh, I'll go along with you on declaring them that. And, and if you're just tuning in, I declared that they were going to win the national championship more than three weeks ago. And I, well, I, I mean, played yeah. the audio from that because I'm, I guess I know a lot about college baseball and I didn't even know that I knew that. <laughs> but they, they definitely got there. And, and in my world and y'all.com, we're just going to go, go ahead and declare them not the national champion, but a national champion of college baseball. Right, that's that's the way to do it, and uh, you know that's 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 the way. That's the reason that uh, at Oxford they they say they've got three national championships, but Alabama claims about seventeen or twenty national. Championships. I think they're up to eighteen now, and they and they've got some of those same names that Ole Miss uses, you know, Dinkle or Yinkle or somebody, you know, national champion, but they claim it. So heck yeah. Answer the question, since we're talking about SEC, let's talk SEC championships. I think I saw something the other day that Mississippi State had never won an SEC championship in football. That's not true. Didn't they win one in 41? They won one in 41. Of course, you didn't. It, they went undefeated. And uh, uh, I think Ole Miss may have been second that year. Unusually close deal. And it, that game depended on it, I believe, the Ole Miss State game. And State won that game 7 to nothing. I think. You know, I'm kind of a semi- And that is also a year I think Alabama claims as a national championship. They do. They claim it. And, of course, in those days, you know, we had Tulane and we had uh, we had uh, Georgia Tech in the Southeastern Conference. And uh, they got out because they wanted to keep their money from the bowls. Back then, you didn't have about seven bowls max, anywhere from five to seven bowls. And you had to split it in the conference, you know, the money. That's the reason those two schools got out of the SEC. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Mississippi State uh, did 
you know, unofficially, officially, however you want to look at it, they were the only one that was six and zero. And the way they used to do that, because I remember it really well, Ole Miss won their last SEC uh, uh, championship. It was in 1963, and they kicked a field goal to tie Mississippi State, uh, I believe, 17 to 17. I was standing on the sideline right beside Coach Johnny Ball when he said, uh, kick the field goal. Well, everybody thought it was crazy because Ole Miss was 5-0. and oh. But Alabama was 5-1. and one. So the tie, 5-0-1, percentage-wise, gave Ole Miss the SEC championship, which is the last one they won. And that was with by, by going for a tie. Hmm. And they were down inside the five-yard line, and they'd been driving the ball. But ball, he wanted to get that SEC championship, which gave them another trip to the Sugar Bowl. But anyway. And their last one, I think. Well, no, they went back with uh, Eli, no, they uh, went Archie. Back with Archie. They went back with Archie and uh, beat Arkansas. The year that Arkansas had played Texas for the national championship, it, Nixon flew into Fayetteville and uh, gave uh, Arkansas. He was going to give the winner. Texas won fourteen to thirteen, I believe, and uh, he gave Texas the national championship trophy at the end of the regular season. And then Ole Miss played them in uh, the Sugar Bowl, and uh, Ole Miss had a really not a real good record that year. Ole Miss was seven and three. And they had been beaten one point by Alabama. It wasn't very good. I think Alabama didn't even make a bowl. Hmm. But they didn't have 100 bowls like they do today. And uh, LSU didn't get to go to a bowl that year because they was, the Sugar Bowl was wanting them. They had won the Southeastern Conference Championship. And that was in 69. Uh, yeah. I guess it would have been in January of 170. So they, uh, they held out and held out. And Notre Dame never had been to a bowl game in history. So they decided to go. LSU was wanting the uh, Cotton Bowl because they had been to the Sugar Bowl maybe uh, the year before or the year before that. So they was holding out. And then the Sugar Bowl got tired of waiting, and they offered it to Ole Miss. It was a 7-3 record. So Ole Miss in one of the top four bowls in America when they didn't have a seven bowls with a 7-3 record. And... uh, and LSU stayed home that year <laughs> because uh, Notre Dame went on to the Cotton Bowl. That was the year that LSU lost to Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Uh, they lost to Tennessee the week after they beat Ole Miss with Billy Cannon. Drunk. That's right. I think they were a one-loss team with the only they, loss to Tennessee. Yeah, they lost to Tennessee after, after they had beat Ole Miss. And would have gone and had a tremendous bowl opportunity – but they well, got the greedy year, and decided to yeah. go to Cotton Bowl. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it was kind of like Ole Miss went to the Sugar Bowl about five out of eight years. Hmm. And it was getting to be, you know, just a little bit too much. And uh, so LSU, it would seem like they were down there when Ole Miss went down there. So they wanted to go to Cotton Bowl. Now, Ole Miss went to Cotton Bowl uh, two or three times in the 50s to the 60s. And I think Ole Miss went in 60 uh, – 62, uh, and went back to the Sugar Bowl in 63, and they was in the Sugar Bowl in 61, and they was in the Sugar Bowl in 60 on a rematch against LSU on the Cannon Bowl. So, you know, it was things were a lot different then than they are today in, in uh, intercollegiate athletics. So, you know, well, back then, it was more about who you wanted and who your favorite uh, draw would have been, 
mm-hmm. you know, like LSU would have been a big draw. And there was only one game on TV a week of college football uh, in the 50s and 60s. And that was really unique. I don't remember those days. Talking to Jerry Short, and just like the old days, it's kind of a throwback here. Again, we declare NC State a co-champion or a, a champion of college baseball, and that was the way it was often done in college sports many, many decades ago. We are going to go to a quick break. Come right back. Jerry Short has been brushing up on a developing story out of all places, China. And what does this have to do with the South? That will be told to you right after this break. You're enjoying Y'all Talk With a Southern Accent. show with John Rawl. Jerry Short is our Taka Polo storyteller, kind of wrapping up this hour with our conversation with the man in T-Town, Taka Polo. And Jerry, I'm impressed. Before we came on here with you today, you told me you've been following the story about mankind in China. And Jerry, it looks like perhaps China might have beaten us once again, not, not only with the China virus, but also the fact that they might have had a head start with mankind before the rest of us kind of got into the uh, game. What do you know about what's been developing there in terms of this thing they found maybe in a cave or somewhere? Happened, it's only happened in the last couple of days. And uh, they, they've they had this skull that they found in the... Uh, the reason they call this... Uh, uh, Neanth- it's not a Neanderthal anymore because it's older than the Neanderthals. Hmm. That's a that's 100,000 years ago. And this this skull skull is supposed to be uh, 150,000 years old. Of course, they they're starting to try to, as they do in colleges this day and time. Looks to me like they're trying to look at uh, evolution, maybe a lot, because they're saying that we maybe have sprung from this latest one in China. Now, Jerry, they that's call- that is Neanderthal thinking. Well, I'm a little bit Neanderthal uh, mentally, so. I guess it fits with me, but but uh, anyway, uh, they found this thing. It was actually discovered, I believe, in 1933 when the Japanese started moving into China. Yeah, and they were putting a bridge across the, uh, uh, I believe it was the Dragon River, and uh, 
they dug up this skull. It was in perfect shape. It uh, it was, uh, I believe, if I remember reading an article, the dimensions were something like uh, uh, eight inches wide and uh, sixteen inches or fifteen inches uh, long, and it had a a bigger cranium, and it had a it had the uh, above the eyes, the eye socket were really large where it had a place for the eyes and it scared the people that found it so they hit it they actually took it it was the ones that was building the bridge i assume would have been the japanese they took it and put it in a well where it stayed for 80 years well they got it out of the well and they started they finally started to do some dna as we do today and testing Mm -hmm. on it and they've come up with this figure that it could be uh uh, 150 years old. 150,000. Uh, years old. So that does away with uh, the, our fam- what they're trying to do is change our family tree, it looks like. So our family tree, we wouldn't be right under the uh, Neanderthal, you know, which is a Java man and a few more Asian men and wherever skulls were found 100,000 years ago, period. But we're going to be in this... Uh, and his sister, they give it a name of um, not Homo sapien, which we consider, you know, we evolved to a Homo sapien. I'm speaking like a scientist, which I'm not. But, uh, <laughs> Dr. Jerry Short here. Yeah. But obviously, uh, you know, we're not a Homo sapien. Uh, we're a human being, I think. But the scientists like to call us a Homo sapien. But anyway, they're saying this could be a sister to the Neanderthal. Uh, deal, which would be another 50,000 years later, though. You know? So, uh, anyway, they've, they've found it, they've gone over it, and uh, they've named it um, Long G, Long Long G, Homo Long G, instead of Homo sapiens. And it's going to be our, in our family tree, uh, we revolve from that period. And I don't know where you start revolving from, Revolving or evolve? Either one. You know, we're revolving and uh, we're evolving. And so we've evolved into this, uh, what me and you are looking at each other like right now. We've become what me and you see when we look at each other from a job man. Yeah, from Neanderthal. So the Neanderthal was our closest relative, as they refer to it, scientists. You know, that... And they went extinct uh, over a period of time. And naturally, what do scientists want to do? They went extinct because of maybe the environment was bad or things like that. Global warming. Yeah, global warming. And I'm sure we may have had some. But anyway, back to this dragon man. is a It's a, it's a common name that they're going to call him. Um, that's going to be our closest relative. But as I started to say a while ago, uh, the calendar began, uh, ACBC. Let's go ACBC on the calendar. The longest date I remember is the first Olympics, I believe, were like in 700-something B.C. in Rome, maybe, in the, in the Colosseum. But then if you go back to that, I have read somewhere that the calendar goes back to the second B.C. Dec- uh, millennial. Like we just went through our hours. We could go back to that BC wise. Hmm. So, but you know, 
I'm thinking Homo sapien to heck with it. I'm thinking Adam and Eve. And uh, so what would that be? How many years? You know, would that, have they come up with that uh, skull yet? Have they DNA'd that skull? You know, so we're going to have to live and see what scientists try to hang on us with this situation. And it, like you said, it's out of China. And uh, sometimes good things don't just always come out of China. No. I remember when I didn't have a telephone, but we had food, plenty of food. And if I didn't eat it all, my mother would say, son, you eat the rest of that because there's kids starving in China now. So uh, I'll never forget that. And it was like, eat your food because there's somebody, some kids in China that don't have anything to eat. So now they've got the oldest human being. Like that's where uh, where, where, the, where it all began. But uh, it's in that area, and they tried to hide it for a long time. And evidently science has just now got to studying the skull. It's a perfect skull. I've looked the skull uh, photo up. And uh, gosh, dog, you know, it, it, it was room for, I believe they said, a four-pound brain uh, inside that skull because it's a perfect skull. And I bet my brain don't weigh but a pound and a half. But uh, that's neither here nor there. There's <laughs> probably a lot there. But uh, anyway, um, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to follow and see what they try to, what they try to push on us. But Jerry, I'm impressed with your knowledge of this subject. I am, and we've just we've just learned a lot. I feel like I've been through a college class. Well, now look, I read the article, and it was written by some uh, scientists in uh, uh, Oxford, England, not Oxford, Mississippi, and uh, where Rhodes Scholars go. You didn't know I was a Rhodes Scholar, did you? R O A D S, yeah. Boy, you got me on that one too. But you're right. Yeah, I was a Rhodes Scholar. But anyway, that's where they're doing a lot of research on it. And they also, in Peking, uh, they're doing research on it. So I guess time will tell us uh, exactly what our family tree looks like when they get through doctoring it up. You know, I thought my family tree was a son on one arm, a daughter on the other arm, and their children hanging to them. And if we did, uh, when I was 60 years old, I got them together and I said, uh, okay, for the family picture on my birthday here, we're going to do, we're going to do a family tree for the picture, and I put my son on one arm and put him on my shoulder. I put my daughter on the other one, and then they had their kids hanging on to them. And luckily, the kids were a lot smaller when I was sixty, and also luckily, another one was born later, so I had one less on the family tree. But we took that family tree picture, and I, I'm going to let that be my family tree if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, a family tree that might go all the way back to Peking. Who knows? Oh, I know. I've always wanted to go to Peking. And, <laughs> uh, we might get our chance, you know. Yeah, home, the old home place, Peking. There you go. Jerry, thank you very much. Great to talk to you, and thank you for the incredible knowledge here that you brought on today's Y'all Show. Well, I'm just mostly talking, but it's what I read. And, uh, it, you know, let's just uh, say I didn't invent it, but I, I do believe that uh, – Man started with Adam and Eve, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go down swinging, believing that. All right. And I hope you have a great day. And Thank you very much, everybody. Jerry Short, our Takapola storyteller, and that will wrap up that brief conversation with Jerry. We got more of the show that is all about the South, and this show is going to continue right after this. Don't forget our number is eight zero three eight one six eleven seventy. 
southern accent. Here's what's cooking in the south from y'all.com. I'm Kobe Bennett. Cooking hamburgers is a 4th of July tradition, but we need to talk about your buns. Y'all.com grilling barrister Matt Hearman shares his important tip on what to do with your hamburger buns, no matter the thickness or sesame seed count. I think the one thing that really kind of sets the bun off is to toast it. I think you got to have a little bit of butter, maybe in a skillet, or you can even put it on the grill to get a little bit of uh, texture there. Plus, it kind of provides a nice uh, firm boundary between the juicy burger and the the rest of the bun. So there's really nothing like that edge on a toasted bun kind of around the on the sides when you first bite into the side of the burger with that crunch. That's what's that's what's that's what it is uh, about for me when it comes to the bun, Um, no matter what kind of bun. And if you want to take your buns to a whole new level of taste greatness, try pressing them for a few seconds on a sandwich grill. Recipes, tips, headlines, and more at y'all.com. Did he just start talking about buns? I think I heard that right. They were talking about buns to wrap up this second hour of the Y'all Show. We love buns, don't we? Especially pressed and toasted and on a hamburger for the 4th of July. I love that. Get ready. We're a week away from having toasted, delicious buns on the 4th of July. And for hot dogs, too. That puts Hour 2 in the books. we got Hour 3 coming up. Don't, don't miss out on the fun. Some Southern sports news after the break. We're back for hour three on this Monday edition of Y'all, powered by the homepage of the South, y'all.com. I'm John Rawl. Hope you have enjoyed our first two hours. We're going to close it out here on this Monday with more Southern fun. We've got an update on Southern sports that we'll be getting to momentarily. And then we'll tell you about the romances of good old Richard Mentor Johnson. <laughs> What a lover boy. What a what an amazing lover in the fact that if you had to know what he went through. Oh, by the way, who is he? He was the nation's ninth vice president. He was from Kentucky, and he's in the news this week because they have stripped his name off of a county in Iowa and renamed it after someone else. I'll have that information coming up here in just a few minutes as we go throughout southern news and notes here and we also will tell you later on in the hour we'll continue on with our coverage of all things southern and i'll tell you about some statues that are going up in the south and one they're trying to put up in gulf shores alabama and it ain't exactly going too well as they're trying to put up if you want to call it a statue of a land shark i thought those things get erected in Oxford, Mississippi, <laughs> but they're trying to put up a land shark thing in Gulf Shores, and it's not going too well. We'll have all that coming up on today's y'all show, so stay tuned for that. Plus, an update from South Florida as they're continuing to go through the rubble of that collapsed apartment building, a condo building there in Surfside, Florida. That's coming up. Plus, we'll let you know what's going to be on y'all dot com the rest of the week if you want to go check out what y'all.com has and what the y'all show has coming your way here this week all that is part of our coverage of being the southern show 803-816-1170 is how you can get in touch with y'all and we also have an email address if you want to reach out to us that way your calls your text 
are more than welcome. 803-816-1170. It is so incredibly easy for y'all to get in touch with us here, and we want to hear from you. Trey Young injured his ankle. He says it's sore and hurting, and as a result of perhaps that injury, the Atlanta Hawks go down on Sunday to the Milwaukee Bucks in game number three of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks. 113-102, the Greek Freak and Middleton escape Atlanta, at least game three, with the victory. I had to think twice when I saw the highlights of this game because Milwaukee was wearing blue in this matchup. This is a franchise known to be green. And what in the world are they doing wearing blue when they were playing against Atlanta? They look like the Oklahoma City Thunder out there playing. And it's another example of how Nike has completely destroyed sports uniforms. And if you don't believe me, did you see what they just came out with the other day for the Major League Baseball All-Star game? As both teams will have the same uniform, uh, different contrasting colors, but it's just it's just pretty bad. It's just real bad. I miss the days of the All-Star game where every team wore their main jersey of their team they played for. If you're the home team in the All-Star game, you wore your white uniform, and if you're the visiting team, you generally wore your gray or some form of gray, maybe a powder blue shade as the visitor. No dark jerseys. I still am not a fan of dark jersey uniforms for Major League Baseball. It's not traditional enough for traditionalists like me. And here Nike goes and destroys a pretty good trend, a pretty good tradition in baseball by having the All-Star game essentially be where you just wear your main uniform. As a fan, I want to go and see an All-Star game and see all these uniforms that I never get to see unless I go see those teams play in their respective ballparks. And here they are, of course, screwing that again, screwing that up again. And back to the NBA. So the Milwaukee Bucks uniform they wore on Sunday in Atlanta was blue, and it was to honor Milwaukee being on Lake Michigan. As the name Milwaukee is technically, let's see here. I looked this up last night, and I should have it memorized <laughs> what uh, what it actually – it was inspired by Lake Michigan. It's called the City Edition uniform for the Milwaukee Bucks. It's called the Great Lakes Blue City Edition, and it's inspired by the actual translation of the word Milwaukee as Milwaukee – translates to be the gathering place by make sure I don't mess this up the gathering place by the water okay wasn't sure if it was by a lake or a river or or what but let's all go to the gathering place by the water aka Milwaukee and that's how the Bucks have this blue two-tone blue uniform that they were wearing in Atlanta on Sunday, which is really weird to see 
this team known for its green. It, I think it's other than the Celtics, they're the only two green teams in NBA basketball. But that was still better than what the Atlanta Hawks wear sometimes. They have this black uniform that says MLK on it. I don't think I have to explain who that's for, but what does MLK have to do with the Atlanta Hawks? I'm sorry. And then this is a uniform they wear a lot, by the way, there in Atlanta. They wear it uh, maybe every four or five games. And when I first saw it, the point is, the reason I don't like the uniform, I don't have a clue who the who MLK is. When I first saw it, I thought it was a – I thought it, oddly enough, I thought it was the Milwaukee Bucks. I thought MLK was the airport code for Milwaukee, which I thought was a, probably had to be confusing since Martin Luther King's initials are fairly – common and well-known throughout the world and so here's nike again i blame nike for all of it and uh, they they have to come in here and screw up a, a uniform if the hawks wanted to wear an mlk uniform one time that was one thing but this is a uniform they wear pretty regularly and it's just very confusing and and i don't think a, a, an individual probably should have a uniform in a normal rotation of uniforms when it should be named after the city or the area, and not a person, no matter if it is Martin Luther King. That's how I feel. But it's very confusing. Is Again, I spent probably five minutes when I first saw them wearing that MLK uniform thinking that it was the Milwaukee Bucks playing and not the Atlanta Hawks because the colors are also different from what the Hawks normally wear. That uniform is black and gold and not red and gold of what the Hawks wear. Okay, back to more important things. The Hawks did lose. Milwaukee wins 113-102. And Milwaukee takes a 2-1 series lead. In the NBA here on this Monday, the Phoenix Suns have a chance to close out their Western Conference Finals with a win this evening. It is going to be a 9 Eastern 8 o'clock tip on ESPN between the Clippers and the Suns. It's game five. Phoenix currently leads that 3-1. Pretty remarkable how the Phoenix Suns will be perhaps in the NBA Finals if they get this victory. Who saw that one coming? And Chris Paul, the Wake Forest alum, a big part of the success of the Phoenix Suns here in 2021. To the golfing world, and in Atlanta on Sunday, Nellie Corda won the KPMG PGA Championship. She bested her nearest opponent by three strokes. She dominated the 22-year-old Bradenton, Florida native. Has won now six times on the LPGA Tour. I think she just won the weekend before. She is rolling. And her sister, Jessica, is also a very good LPGA golfer. They're both in the top five of the standings in the LPGA Tour. Of course, her dad is Peter Corda. Peter Corda, a guy, a former tennis player. I actually was mistaken. He was, I thought, a golfer at one point. He's a former pro tennis player, a native of Czechoslovakia. They have a brother, Sebastian Corda, and he is also a tennis player. Pretty athletic family, don't you think? The Corda family. Two Let's see, two tennis players and two golfers. Their mother must be a real slacker, Regina. Regina, let's see, was she a tennis player? She is a former tennis player herself, I think. Maybe not. 
But it, it doesn't matter. They, the genes are good there in the court of family. And Nellie is now the number one golfer in LPGA golf after she wins the PGA championship on the women's tour in Atlanta there at the Atlanta Golf Club and wins a very, very nice paycheck for that. And both she and her sister, Jessica, invited and are going to be part of the U.S. women's golf team in the upcoming Olympics. Corda sisters representing good old USA in the forthcoming Olympics. Now to the men's side of the golfing world, a guy with Georgia connections, Harris English, former UGA golfer, a native of Georgia who played his high school golf at Baylor School in Chattanooga. He's a former Tennessee state champion, I think, when he was prepping in the volunteer state there in Chattanooga. Harris English, the long, lanky golfer, wins the Travelers Championship in Connecticut after beating Kramer Hickok in a eight-hole sudden death playoff. I was watching golf Sunday afternoon. Someone called. I said, look, I don't need to talk to you right now. I'm watching this golf tournament. I'll be happy to call you back in just a minute. And that was around 5 o'clock Sunday. At 7 o'clock Sunday, I was able to return that phone call because Hickok and Harris English had an eight-hole sudden-death playoff televised live on CBS. It was really exciting. It was really good. These these two golfers went back and forth. They each had chances to win. They ended up missing putts that they probably could have, could have, should have made. And the crowd there in Cromwell, Connecticut, south of Hartford, were really into it. It was almost like a scene out of Happy Gilmore. They were doing the wave. They were taunting. They were all, it looked like sounding like they were all favoring Kramer Hickok, the former Texas Longhorn golfer former roommate of Jordan Spieth, a guy who has not yet won on the PGA Tour. His beautiful bride there was there, his his Hickox bride there, his parents also in attendance in Connecticut. And unfortunately for them, he just came up a wee bit short and he missed out on his chance to win for the first time on the PGA Tour. This tournament, by having eight playoff holes, ties for the second longest playoff in the history of the PGA Tour. The last time the PGA Tour went above eight holes in a sudden-death playoff, it was an 11-hole sudden-death playoff. Y'all remember this one? 1949, between Lloyd Mangrum and Dr. Kerry Middlecoff, the Memphis dentist, who played collegiately at the University of Mississippi and a Masters champion, Dr. Kerry Middlecoff, who I think ended up choosing dentistry over the PGA Tour when it was all said and done. Also, I didn't know until they said it on TV, he was actually the analyst on CBS, their coverage of golf prior to, let's see, Ben, what was Ben's last name? Hmm. Nick Faldo has that position now, I should remember, having a junior moment. But uh, Kerry Middlecoff, the Memphian and Ole Miss Rebel, did not lose that sudden death playoff back in 49 at the Motor City Open. It actually being, it ended up he and Lloyd Mangrum agreed to 
be claimed or titled co-winners by mutual agreement. And the only reason that happened is the tournament got to be dark due to darkness. Both were declared co-winners of that 1949 Motor City Open. And that was an 11-hole sudden death back in 49. And on Sunday, you had an 8-hole sudden death playoff that ended up being a victory for the Georgia-slash-Tennessee golfer Harris English. He wins his fourth time on the PGA Tour, winning $1.3 million. And he also ends up, Harris English, now being second in the FedEx point standings. Way to go there, Harris English. And also got to give a very good shout-out to Kramer Hickok, the Texan, who did a good job and just the break didn't fall there at the end. It was a great tournament. It was a lot of fun to watch. If you get a chance to see that one on replay, watch the Travelers of 2021. That's a tournament we've seen some real drama through the years from Jordan Spieth knocking in a shot out of the bunker to win, walk-off win there years ago. I remember that was the tournament, too. I think someone around 50 years old won for the very first time ever, about eight, nine, ten years ago, something like that. Fun, fun tournament there. Even though it's above the Mason-Dixon line, they, they do a really, really good job there with this tournament. Now to some college baseball news on ESPN2 this evening. It's the first game of the College World Series finals from Omaha at TD Ameritrade Park. Vanderbilt, Tim Corbin's club, is going to be suiting up and defending their national champion. Vanderbilt looks for two in a row, and they're going to be taking on a team that they know, a team right out of the SEC, just like the Vanderbilt Commodores. Mississippi State is the opponent, and this is set for a 7 Eastern, 6 o'clock Omaha time start between MSU and Vanderbilt, SEC versus SEC in the College Baseball World Series Finals. Game one is this evening. Game two will be on Tuesday. And if necessary, game three will be on Wednesday. But college baseball in Omaha, it's going to be really exciting. Lots of Mississippi State fans making their way to TD Ameritrade Park. And I happen to see some of the games from this past weekend. Vanderbilt, again, is in this championship because – their game that was supposed to be played Saturday against NC State, a game that would decide who goes home and who gets to advance to these finals, was canceled. Canceled because NC State tested positive for coronavirus, and I guess they had too many players to field a team. NC State was sent packing to Raleigh and will not have a chance to play for a national championship. In hour one of today's Y'all Show, we here at the Y'all Show and at Y'all.com have declared the NC State Wolfpack a national champion of college baseball. Now, who is going to be the other champion of college baseball? We will find out soon when Mississippi State and Vanderbilt wrap up their series. Game one, again, set for this Monday evening, 7 Eastern, 6 Central, ESPN2 is where you can tune in to see the Diamond Dogs and the Vandy Boys. We've got more of the Y'all Show coming up. Stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to switch over and tell you about a Kentuckian that ended up being the vice president of the United States back in 2000, not 2000, back in the mid-19th century. Might seem like it was in the 2000s, the craziest things were back at that time period. Richard Mentor Johnson was his name. 
and he's in the news. Speaking of the 2000s, he's in the news right now for something that just happened over the weekend in Iowa. What does that have to do with a vice president from the 1800s? I'll share that news with you next here on The Y'all Show. Dateline, Johnson County, Iowa. Over the weekend, officials there have renamed Johnson County, Iowa after a woman named Lulu Merle Johnson, a professor and historian, the first black woman to earn a Ph.D. in the history of Iowa. And now Johnson County, Iowa is named after Lulu Merrill Johnson. Why are we talking about that here on today's Y'all Show? Because prior to this weekend, Johnson County, Iowa was named for Richard Mentor Johnson, who served as vice president under Martin Van Buren back in the 1800s. And his county there in Iowa is no more, as this county has taken a page out of King County in Washington State and renamed their county from King County after a gentleman from Alabama and named that county several years ago after Martin Luther King, officially. Still the same county name, but it is a honor now, not for a Southerner, but for someone else. In this case, Johnson County, Iowa, county seat there, if you ever travel to there. Did you realize the county seat of Johnson County, Iowa is Iowa City? home of the University of Iowa, the Hawkeyes. That is their city there that they call home. And now it's got a different namesake as a result of this decision from the past weekend. So we talk now on the Y'all Show here with John Rawl about Southern history and the unique part of this world, the unique and sometimes complex history of the South. And I dive into things that you may not be all that familiar with, and it may be a little bit uncomfortable. But that's what one of our goals here on this show is to do, is to tell you about our Southern history, our unique Southern history. And sometimes it's not exactly the prettiest of things. I'm trying to be an adult here, and I'm not trying to get in trouble. I'm just relaying our Southern history. Take it, if you will, however you want to. So they renamed this county. It was named for Richard Minter Johnson. Richard Minter Johnson was the ninth vice president of the United States, serving with President Martin Van Buren 
from 1837 to 1841. He was only a one-term vice president, as Martin Van Buren was only a one-term president. Now, prior to being vice president, Johnson had been a U.S. senator from the state of Kentucky, serving in the 1820s. He also had been a U.S. House of Representative member from Kentucky in the 1830s. This was before he ended up being vice president. So he went from senator to congressman to then vice president. And Richard Minter Johnson has a really unusual story, especially when we start talking about his love life. He was born in Beargrass, Virginia, but that's actually today known as Louisville, Kentucky, born there in 1780, when technically Kentucky was part of Virginia in the earliest days of this country. Born there 1780. And then in his early life, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and ended up aligning himself as a member of the Warhawks faction that favored war with Britain in 1812. He was commissioned in 1812 a colonel in the Kentucky militia, and he went off to fight there under William Henry Harrison, and they went up to Upper Canada across from Detroit, Michigan, is where we're talking about, and they fought there. And it is this man we're talking about here today, Richard Mentor Johnson, credited with killing Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. He killed Tecumseh in a battle there, the Battle of the Thames, and that is in Ontario where this battle, that was an American victory there in the War of 1812, and it happened in what's now known as Ontario. But this guy killed this great Indian. In fact, Tecumseh's death devastated the Shawnee tribe so much so I think they quit fighting. And that's how the War of 1812 ultimately came to be a draw. But he ended up returning to the House of Representatives, then became a senator, and ended up becoming ultimately vice president of the United States. Now, let me tell you about Richard Mentor Johnson's love life. This is why the South, we've got some interesting stories to tell, do we not? We do. And we've always had interesting stories to tell, especially when it comes to relationships. Now, after that War of 1812, Richard Minter Johnson got back into politics. The Kentucky State Legislature appointed him to be in the U.S. Senate to fill a vacancy left by John J. Crittenden, another name pretty common in the South, Crittenden. And Johnson ended up becoming Kentucky senator, but it wasn't without controversy. As he was being criticized for his interracial relationship with a woman named Julia Chin, a mixed-race slave who was classified as an octoroon. An octoroon is a person with one-eighth African ancestry, seven-eighth European, one-eighth octoroon. And he was in a relationship with this woman, Julia Chin. Unlike other upper-class planners, as he was, and leaders who had black 
mistresses and concubines back in the early 19th century. And those people often never acknowledged that they had these slave lovers. Even if they were one-eighth slave, they were still considered slave or black. This man, Johnson, treated his mixed-race lover as his common-law wife. And he acknowledged the two daughters that they had had as his own children, even given them his surname, and it really ticked off a lot of people in Kentucky, his constituents. It is believed that because of this, the state legislature picked another candidate for Senate in 1828, forcing Johnson to leave in 1829, but his congressional district voted for him and got him back in the U.S. House in the very next election. So because of his love of his mixed-race wife, his own state legislature, after several years of serving, kicked him out of office. But he stayed faithful to his octoroon, one-eighth black woman he had as a common-law wife, Julia Chin. He was never allowed to marry her, by the way. Never allowed to marry this woman that he loved dearly and stayed with her until she died in the summer of 1833 from a widespread cholera epidemic. And Johnson was devastated by this. So, again, that relationship that Richard Mentor Johnson and his woman, Chin, had really displays the contradictions of slavery at that time. They were considered property. But here was a guy who truly, deeply was in a relationship in public about his common-law wife. And some say that at times he was heard to call her his bride. And they acted like a married couple. And unfortunately, again, she died before he did. And that is kind of the unusual story that I'd never heard of this thing. I'd never heard of the word octoroon until this story came out. But upon her death, upon his death as well, their two daughters, who, again, he proudly claimed as his own, gave them his surname, Johnson, they were actually considered slaves, his own daughters. So they would have been one-sixteenth black, but they were considered slaves at that time and ended up not being able to acquire their father's inheritance when he died. Very unusual. In fact, his brothers, Richard Mentor Johnson's brothers, are the ones that received his estate upon his death as he died in 1850 at age 70. In fact, after his wife, Miss Chen, died, he ended up becoming close and having a relationship with another woman, another slave. Another family slave is who he began having an intimate relationship with. And she actually left him. Now, this explains how crazy times were. So this guy had already had a relationship with a mixed-race woman. She dies. He ends up having an intimate relationship with one of his slaves. She left him for another man, and he had her picked up and sold at auction. And then... He started an affair with her sister after she was sold off. So, I mean, still a rough time and just a weird part of our Southern history and a tragic 
part of our Southern history in some ways. But here's a guy who actually was in love with a technical slave at that time and was public about it, costing him the U.S. Senate seat in Kentucky at one point. But his constituents thought enough of him, they elected him to the U.S. House again. Richard Mentor Johnson, who again this week they have renamed Johnson County in Iowa, home of Iowa City, after another person, the first Ph.D. black woman in Iowa history is now the namesake of Johnson County, Iowa, not Richard Mentor Johnson. And that, my friends, hopefully explains a little bit of the complex relationship we have here in the South with our history and our heritage and our our love affairs and the black-white relationship. I mean, this this one here is one that wraps it all up into one pretty little presentation. It's love. It's, it's tragedy. It is the guy becoming involved with another slave, and then she leaves him for another man, and he gets her sold off at auction. And then he's then hanging out with her sister, after all that again richard mentor johnson his name go look him up if you want to learn more the ninth vice president of the united states and in the news here this week just thought we would share that give you some light reading material for the evening when we come back on the y'all show we'll take a glance at some headlines we've got some developing news out of the day's headlines that we'll share with you all that plus A monument being unveiled in Atlanta over the weekend. That's coming up here on Talk with a Southern Accent. Again, to y'all, thank you, Brown and McGee, with that one, Trouble in Mind, as we look back at some news developments here on this Monday and news out of Washington, D.C. here, as the U.S. Supreme Court declining to take up the issue of whether the nation's schools must allow students to use the bathroom that match their gender identities, the court declining without comment to hear the case of Gavin Grimm, who has been the center of a long legal battle with the school board in Gloucester County, Virginia, Grimm was born female but identified as male after his freshman year in high school, legally changing his name and beginning hormone therapy. And now again, the Supreme Court today denying review in this case, and that means Gavin Grimm's victory in the lower courts remains intact as the Supreme Court declining to take up the issue of whether the nation's schools must allow students to use the bathroom that match their gender identities. More transgender stories to pass along here on The Y'all Show. More headlines here, and we'll start talking from 
that to statues, the statues of the Southeast. And we have had a statue unveiled in Atlanta over the weekend. But I'm going to tell you about one they're trying to put up in Gulf Shores, Alabama. Have y'all heard about this one? There's a drama going on between the Gulf Shores Commissioners and Alvin's Island Surf Company. If you've ever been on the beach here in the south, you have likely seen an Alvin's Island. And Alvin's Island is determined to put up a big gigantic land shark, a big giant shark in front of their novelty souvenir shop in Gulf Shores. And the Gulf Shores commissioners and more are fighting it <coughs> tooth and nail. And right now there's been some bloodshed, if you will, between these two sides. A vice chairman of the Gulf Shores Planning Commission recently with a quote saying, I don't think this is appropriate to put out there with children. We don't want to glorify sharks. Sharks bite people. It's the wrong thing to put out there on the beach. I'm sure they've had these things. I haven't necessarily seen a gigantic shark here lately, but Alvin's Island likely has the same statue at other beach locations in the south that they control. Surely to goodness they do, right? What's so scary about a gigantic massive shark at Gulf Shores? Well, evidently, the folks in Gulf Shores, not exactly at least the leadership, happy about a Gulf Shores shark on patrol in front of Alvin's Island. Have y'all been into one of those? I think I went into one the last time I was on the beach of the, the Gulf Coast, and those things are big, man. And they got about 90% junk, but about 10% pretty cool stuff. That's my opinion. 90% junk, 10% stuff that might actually be worth purchasing. It's a novelty souvenir shop, locations in the south and more. Alvin's Island Surf Company, Well, they want to put this gigantic shark up in Gulf Shores, and the good folks in Gulf Shores aren't exactly welcoming that shark with open arms. Now to a statue that has been erected, as there is now a massive Evander Holyfield statue up in downtown Atlanta. The Atlanta native won bronze in the 1984 Olympics, and then he won his first 28 pro fights as a cruiserweight and heavyweight on the way to a record Evander Holyfield's boxing record, 44-10-1. And, and the 58-year-old ended up having this statue unveiled over the weekend outside State Farm Arena. That is where the Atlanta Hawks play their basketball games. And, and he's got this up there. It's a 10-foot-tall, 2,500-pound bronze likeness of Evander Holyfield. And the likeness has Holyfield posing for photos <laughs> and he said while addressing a crowd there at the unveiling i'm honored to be here today and i thank all the people in my life that gave me this if you don't quit you'll get there i'm the person who just didn't quit mistakes i made a lot of them but i didn't quit i need to put that on a statue right there that quote mistakes i made a lot of them but i didn't quit and we all make mistakes and Evander Holyfield, I guess he made 10 mistakes because he lost 10 battles. He's not a perfect boxer, but whew, big, big photo or big, big bust of him. And I've seen the photo of him standing next to him, the bronze statue of himself outside State Farm Arena in Atlanta. Congratulations. I doubt there's too many boxers with statues in the South, at least. I think that's reserved normally for 
Philadelphia with a guy named Rocky. But how about that, that he won bronze in the 84 Summer Olympics? And if my memory is not completely kaput, I'm not sure that Russia participated in the 84 Olympics. I think they may have boycotted. So I don't know who he would have lost to in that 84 Olympics. Maybe an East German, perhaps? Maybe. 44-10-1, though, Evander Holyfield's boxing record. Very, very successful career. And a guy that's proud to call Atlanta home. And if you go to a Hawks game or you're walking there on the way to a Falcons game and you see a big, gigantic 10-foot statue of a guy with his shirt off getting ready to go into a fight, that's not the real Evander Holyfield. That's likely this brand-new statue of the Olympian and big-time cruiserweight and heavyweight champ Evander Holyfield now immortalized in downtown Atlanta with this statue. When we come back, we're going to put it in statue form this Monday edition. It'll be one for the books, and we'll wrap up this Y'all Show Monday edition. Up next is a preview of what we got on the Y'all Show the rest of this week. So I'm going to come at you with a, a left hook and a right hook, and we're going to knock you out in a positive way after this break. I just got a handful of minutes left here on this Monday edition, and it gives me the opportunity to tell you again, this is the Y'all Show, and we're powered by Y'all.com, the South's homepage. And if you go to Y'all.com, you'll find not only this show, link right there at the top, big old bright red button for you to push called Y'all Show, and you can find great video interviews that we've done, but each and every one of our podcasts of our complete shows available at Y'all.com. And also at y'all.com, you can find other great informational videos and stories. We've got Tricks of the Trade with the great John Allen and Jimmy Duke posted there. We did a great feature of that this weekend. Squeaky Floors, Kitchen Sanitation, and John talks about stealing corn as a youngster. All part of Tricks of the Trade, and you can watch that at y'all.com. We also have a great story about the Tennessee Towns of Ducktown and Copper Hill and the Georgia town of McKaysville, the Tri-Cities there along the Georgia-Tennessee border. And we've had a writer from y'all.com go there and has penned a fantastic story. You can read that, again, at y'all.com, the South's homepage, and y'all.com powers this here y'all show. And on Tuesday's y'all show, our barbecue barrister, Matt Hermans will be dropping by 
and he'll have incredible information getting you ready for the 4th of July. He's got hot dogs on his mind come Tuesday. On Wednesday's Y'all Show, we've got information on books, our ACC report also coming your way on Wednesday. Thursday, it's the SEC report. And then when we get back together to close out the week and get you ready for the 4th of July, our buddy Craig Faulkner will be getting ready to head to the lake. And before he gets out the door to do that, he's going to be on with his fishing forecast. All that again coming up on the Friday Y'all Show. So we got a full week here on Talk with a Southern Accent, and we're looking forward to spending the week with all y'all. I'm John Rawl. Thank you again for being a part of the Y'all Show. We will see you on Tuesday.